Take your Bibles. If you're a guest here this morning, we have fun at Cornerstone. But we're also serious about the Word of God and our walk with Him. Take your Bibles and open them to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. As we continue in our series of messages through the book of Galatians, and our, the, the title of this series is Living Free. A few months ago, we began praying for one, one person that God placed on your heart that you would like to um, see come to Christ, to share the gospel with, so that they can accept Jesus in their heart as their Savior and Lord. And I'm convinced that the best way to convince someone about the transforming power of the gospel is through one's own personal testimony. When you use your personal story along with the gospel, there is nothing as powerful as someone hearing you share what God has done in your own life and how it was the gospel. It was God's grace that turned your life around. But sadly, many people have never really thought about their salvation story, at least not enough to put it down on paper and to get it in their mind so that they can recite it, so that they can share it in a concise, simple, understandable way. And this morning, I want to try to help you as we look at the personal testimony of the Apostle Paul. I want to try to help you to see why it's important to share your story of salvation, your personal testimony, and then give you some suggestions at the end of the message on how to prepare a testimony that you can present uh, to people. If you've got your Bible open there to Galatians chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 24. And here we find the Apostle Paul sharing his story of salvation, his story of conversion. Um, In fact, If you go back to verse 10 and then look all the way through verse 21 of chapter 2, it's often called the autobiographical section of this letter. It is Paul's salvation story. Um, Paul is recounting his conversion here and his early Christian experience. Now, he's not sharing his testimony for general inspiration or even to point to himself. But rather, Paul is using it, his testimony, to refute the claims of the Judaizers, these false teachers that had infiltrated the church and were trying to uh, make Paul uh, less than what he claimed to be and to, and to uh, make his gospel uh, look like a false gospel. In fact, Paul is saying, look, the gospel that I shared with you, the message of salvation that I presented is the same message that transformed my life. And so he goes into uh, his history, his life history about his life before conversion, his life at conversion, and after conversion. And he says, none of this, what I'm doing today, who I am today, none of it would be possible apart from God's gospel of grace. And so what I want you to take from the message this morning is the fact that Paul's conversion story is a testimony to the transforming power of the gospel. Paul's conversion is a testimony to us of the transforming power of the gospel. If God could take a man like the Apostle Paul 
and change his life. Friend, God can change anyone's life because of his God's grace. So let's look here. There are three aspects of Paul's conversion that I want you to note here in these verses. First of all, before conversion, Paul resisted the grace of God. Before conversion, Paul resisted God's grace. His radical change of life is seen by comparing his former life before he met Jesus to his life afterwards. And his life before conversion can be characterized in two ways. First of all, Paul persecuted the Jesus followers, the church of of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look in verse 13. Paul says, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Now, Paul recounts here that until his conversion, he was violently opposed to the church, to the followers of Christ, to Christianity. Paul um, thought Jesus Jesus of Nazareth was an imposter. He thought he was a blasphemer. Um, He he hated Christianity. Um, And he was doing everything he could to wipe Christianity off the face of the earth. He thought Christianity was a cult of such a dangerous nature that it should be stamped out at all cost. Nothing but grace could take a man like the Apostle Paul, filled with hatred, filled with disdain for the things of Christ um, and for Christians. Nothing could turn his life around but the grace of God. Paul had been bent on violence and hatred. He had sought to utterly stamp out the church to wipe the followers of Jesus off the map. But then Paul experienced the grace of God and it transformed him into the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul persecuted the church, the Jesus followers before his conversion. But not only Was he filled with hatred for the church? And he took it out by persecuting Christ's followers. But I want you to see in the second place, he practiced the Jewish faith. Look in verse 14. He said, And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. You see, before conversion, Paul was a great religious man. He followed all of the rituals and customs and regulations and rules of the Jewish faith. He sought to live according to Old Testament law. In fact, he advanced way beyond his contemporaries at being zealous for righteousness. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and yet none of that had made him right with God. His focus and his fanaticism had been placed upon religion and its traditions, its rituals and ceremonies, and not upon God himself. So Paul is a classic example 
of a person who was sincere in his misguided beliefs before becoming a Christian. He sincerely believed in Judaism. He sincerely believed that his faith was real and he was following his faith because he genuinely believed in it. But I want you to understand something this morning. Sincerity cannot bring you to salvation if you do not sincerely believe in the truth. Sincerity cannot bring you to salvation regardless of what your belief is in, no matter how sincere you are. If your belief is wrong, it cannot save you. You can be sincerely wrong. And in spite of all his zeal, Paul was missing Jesus and he was heading in the wrong direction. And if he had continued off course spiritually, his life would have been destroyed spiritually. Mariner 2 was the world's first successful interplanetary spacecraft. It made headlines when it completed its 36 million mile trip towards Venus. Mariner 2 was launched way back on August the 27th, 1962. The craft passed within 21,000 miles of Venus. It sent back information about interplanetary space and the atmosphere around Venus. What most people have forgotten is that there was a forerunner to Mariner 2. Mariner 1. Mariner 1 was launched on July the 22nd, 1962. The 18 and a half million dollar spacecraft was just as close to perfect as the scientists could make it. But shortly after takeoff, the Atlas Agena rocket that the spacecraft was launched upon, responded improperly to commands from the guidance system on the ground. And it veered off course. And because it veered off course, and there was no telling where it would end up, with the rocket effectively uncontrolled, a range safety officer on the ground ordered the destruction of that $18.5 million spacecraft just 293 seconds after it was launched. You say, well, what happened? In typing out the electronic instructions to the missile, Someone left out a hyphen. A hyphen. That meant that the signals were off by one electric impulse. The missile followed the faulty instructions, and as a result, the project was put on delay for two years and 18 and a half million taxpayer dollars were wasted. That's 
what a simple hyphen can cost. In Paul's former life, the thing that threw him off course was his misguided sense of self-righteousness. Paul thought he was headed in the right direction. Paul thought he was doing the right thing. He sincerely believed in the course he had chosen. He was a true follower of Judaism. He practiced all its rules, its regulations, its ceremonies, its rituals. But the hyphen that put Paul back on accurate course for life was the grace of God. It wasn't until Paul experienced God's grace on the Damascus road that he realized the one thing missing in his life was the gospel of grace. Paul was deeply religious, but he needed grace. Paul was deeply flawed, yet he could be reached by grace. Friend, there is no clearer example that I know of than the Apostle Paul. That salvation is not through our moral living, our moral life, or our religious performance than the Apostle Paul. It is grace and grace alone that saves. You cannot be so bad. You cannot be so hateful as Paul was towards someone. You can't be so far off course uh, morally and religiously that God in his grace cannot save you. Paul shows us from his past before conversion. He was a bitter, angry, hateful man towards Christians and towards Christianity. But he was a truly sincere religious man. And Paul says, neither one were able to keep me from the grace of God. Not my moral badness, not my, not my hatefulness, not my disdain for Christ or his church. Neither my religion could keep me from God. Because I am saved by grace. That's the first thing I want you to see. Um, before conversion, um, uh, Paul resisted grace, both in his life and in his religious practices. Secondly, I want you to see the second stage of Paul's conversion story is at conversion, Paul experienced grace. Now, look what he says in verse 15 in the first part of 16. He says, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. Let's just stop right there. Don't rush over that very first word of verse 15. But that is the most important word in any person's personal testimony. But in other words, you, you tell people, here's what my life was like before conversion. Paul is saying, this is what my life was like before conversion. This is what my life was like before I came to know Christ. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, 
God interrupted Paul's life by his grace. You say, well, what exactly is grace? We've been talking a lot about grace, Rick. What, what is grace? What does it mean? Well, to understand what it truly means, you have to go back to an old Hebrew term that means to stoop or to bend. It came to include the idea of condescending favor. Let me see if I can illustrate it like this. If you've ever been to London um, or you've uh, seen uh, the royal family on uh, television, um, uh, then um, uh, you, you might see every once in a while that royalty is different. They're above the common people. But every once in a while, you will see a member of the royal family, such as Queen Elizabeth, and she will stoop from her royal position. She will get down with the commoners. She will touch. She will bless. She will um, uh, communicate with them uh, in a way that is unnatural for the royal family to act. And when she does that, that gesture is an act of grace on the part of the queen. There is a desire at that moment to pause, to touch, to stoop, and to bless. The late pastor and Bible scholar Donald Gray Barnhouse perhaps said it best. Love that goes upward is worship. Love that goes outward is affection. Love that goes down is grace. And friend, that's what God did for us. God came down in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and lived among us. And that was God in his grace saying, I love you so much that I am willing to come from heaven, from the heights of heaven, and to stoop down, to bend down, to... uh, condescend and come down to earth so that you might know that I love you and I'm willing to forgive you. Before Paul was even born, before Paul did anything good or bad, God stooped down in grace and blessed his life. And Paul looks back and recognizes God's hand of grace. His graciousness upon his life was working in three different ways. First of all, um, grace shaped his life. Look again what it says. But when he who had set me apart before I was born... Paul was a marked man from birth. While still in his mother's womb, the sovereign hand of God was on Paul. God had his eye on this man throughout eternity. Now think about it. From infancy, Paul's life was shaped and directed by God to prepare him to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. C.S. Lewis, in his spiritual autobiography, Surprised by Joy, tells about a a school teacher that he had named Mr. Kirkpatrick. Mr. Kirkpatrick was a skilled debater, and he was a logician. And he taught C.S. Lewis how to build a case and then how to make a strong defense. Mr. Kirkpatrick was also an atheist, And he did his best to indoctrinate C.S. Lewis in atheism. But years later, 
when Lewis became a Christian, it turned out that Kirkpatrick had actually done C.S. Lewis a favor. While his intent was to make him a strong debater and defender of atheism, he instead trained him in the art and skill of debating and um, uh, to, in arguing uh, to, for a defense of a position so that when C.S. Lewis became a Christian, he was the greatest defender of the Christian faith in the 20th century. But listen, what Paul's life demonstrates and what C.S. Lewis's life demonstrates is that even the bad things in my life, even the things that are not so good, God can take and use that for good, for his purpose. Paul says, God's hand was on me before I was born. He set me apart before I was born. I believe that's what Paul meant when he said and wrote in Romans 8.28, for all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. God can take whatever circumstances of your life and God can use them for his glory and your benefit. Paul says, God's hand of grace was upon me. Listen, the gospel enables us to see how God works in his people long before he saves them. Can I just say God has been preparing and shaping your life through your experiences and even your failures to become a vessel of his grace. God doesn't decide at some later time in your life that you are now worth blessing. That all of a sudden he just looks down one day and says, well, old Rick has uh, gotten his life on track and he's turned his life around and he's gotten better than he used to be. I think now I'll, you know, stoop down and bestow my grace upon him. Paul says, that's not true. You say, well, how can you prove that, Rick? Take your Bible and turn over one book to Ephesians. We went through this book before we started this series in Galatians. Some of you are studying Ephesians in your small groups. But look what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. It's up there on the screen. Like Paul, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Friend, God's grace was at work in your life, shaping and forming you just as it was in Paul's long before you were even born. Can I just say, that little boy that we just dedicated to the Lord, that's not God's first impression of this, of little Jay. Friend, God knew Jay Riccio long before he knew, before we knew him, even before his mom and daddy knew him. God already knew him. Paul says, God's hand, he, he had set me apart before I was born. That's not just, that's not just, listen to me, I don't want you to get confused. That doesn't mean just because Paul was an apostle that he was setting him apart just because he was going to be an apostle one day that he was going to proclaim the gospel. No, what he's saying is God set me apart. God's hand was on me because I'm going to show you in just a few minutes that when we understand grace, when we 
we've received grace, it's on all of us to be proclaimers of grace, to share grace. That's what giving your personal testimony is all about. He is saying God's hand was on Paul's, God's hand was on my life before I was born. Paul just happened to be an apostle. I heard somebody say the other day, I'm trying to remember who it was, it was great, um, that God called you, if you're a, if you're a postman, if you're a, a restaurant worker, if you're a garbage collector, if you're a lawyer, a doctor, an educator, God called you just as strongly as he called anybody in ministry. Because he can use you in that area of your work, your profession, your career, just as he uses me in my ministry as a pastor. Because when it all comes down to it, we're all called to be shares of God's grace through our personal story and our knowledge of the gospel. So God shaped Paul's life. Secondly, I want you to see... Grace saved his life. Look what it says in the latter part of verse 15. Having set Paul apart before he could do anything right or wrong, God also saw fit to intrude into his life at just the right moment. He says, God called me by his grace. While Paul was going about uh, his business of persecuting Christians, Paul was met by the risen Christ on the Damascus road. Paul wasn't expecting that to happen that day. Paul was just doing what he was, had been doing. He was chasing after Christians to round them up, persecute them. But on that day, he was met by the risen Christ. That was grace. What Paul deserved was wrath. What he received was grace. Now think about it. He was going after Jesus' followers to persecute them, to make life miserable for them. Why? Because he hated them and he hated Christ. It would be easy, logical to understand. God would reach down and take Paul's life because that's what he deserved. Because of his actions. But instead of extending wrath and punishment, God extended grace. What Paul deserved was wrath. What he received was grace. On a muggy October afternoon in Houston, Texas, 13-year-old Chuck Swindoll was lying in bed, enjoying the day. It was his birthday. His 13th birthday. Window was open. He could hear his daddy outside. He was in the family garden. He was doing some weeding. He'd been out there a while. He was tired and he hollered through the raised window. Chuck, come out here and help me. Chuck Swindoll said, no. He said, it's my birthday, Remember? He said, as soon as I said it, I knew he shouldn't have. He said, my daddy broke the 100-meter record that day getting into our house. He came into my bedroom, yanked me up off that bed and started spanking me and didn't stop till we got outside to the garden. He said, and I weeded 
in that garden all day long. He said, I, we didn't stop till the sun was setting on Mama's pansies. Um, he said, later that night, and I give you, I tell you in his words, he said, later that evening, Dad took me out to a surprise birthday dinner. My dad gave what I deserved earlier. Later, he gave me what I did not deserve. The birthday dinner was grace. He condescended in favor upon this rebellious young man. That evening, I enjoyed what a proper theologian named Benjamin Warfield called free sovereign grace to the ill-deserving. I enjoyed grace. Friend, one's coming to Christ has always been on the basis of God's sovereign will and God's grace, not what we deserve, not our goodness. God stoops down in grace to undeserving people and he says, regardless of what you've done, regardless of how far you have fallen away from me, I love you. I want to forgive you. I want to save you. That's grace. And that's what God did for the Apostle Paul. And that's what God wants to do in your life as well. It was grace that shaped Paul's life. It was grace that saved Paul. And I want you to see thirdly, it was grace that sanctified Paul's life. Look what he says in the first part of verse 16. He was pleased to reveal his son to me. Now what Paul is saying there is, in essence, God saved me so that his son might be unveiled in me. Now here's where I've been wanting to get to for many weeks, for several weeks since we started this. Because I believe there's a tendency when we start talking about grace to think that I'm now free to live basically the way I want. No, you're free to begin living the life of Jesus Christ. To become like Christ in our attitudes, in our actions, in all of our being. Grace sanctified Paul's life. God's design for salvation goes beyond saving souls, beyond us just going to heaven. God created us not only to live with him in heaven, but also to display and glorify Jesus through our lives here on earth. After conversion, we are to become dispensers of grace ourselves so that others can see something of Jesus in our attitudes and our actions and be drawn toward him. I can't think of a greater example of someone revealing Jesus through their faith than what I viewed this past Thursday in a video that went viral after the sentencing of Amber Geiger, the former Dallas policewoman who was on trial for killing 26-year-old accountant Botham John in his apartment. I want you to observe this video as Botham John's brother, Brant, shows through his words and actions one of the greatest examples of God's grace I have ever seen in my life. If you've never seen this, you're going to be in for a surprise. If you have, you know this is an example of Jesus being revealed through a young man's life. I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. 
because I know that's what that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can, can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes. And the judge also hugging that former officer. As you just heard, the judge was so moved by that testimony of that brother extending grace towards the Dallas policewoman who shot and killed his brother. She comes down off the stand and she has in her hand her own personal Bible. And she gives it to Amber Geiger and she says, I'm not going to deny that you've done something bad, but you've not done something so bad that it can't be forgiven and that God can't turn your life around. And then she gave her her Bible and showed her John 3.16 and said, I want you to take this with you to prison and I want you to read it and I want you to think about what it says. And then she herself gave her a hug. And that's grace. That's revealing Jesus through your words and your actions. And can I just say to you this morning, that is what is missing in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ today. That is the kind of demonstration of grace that we are to show the world around us. It doesn't matter what anybody has said about you. Doesn't matter what they've done. Doesn't matter how bad they've acted towards you or a loved one or anybody, anyone else. It's a matter of looking at other people and seeing their life, their sinfulness, and seeing yourself in them. And then... Letting Jesus act through you in the way that he's acted towards you when you yourself understood that God loved you enough that he wanted to forgive you for all the wrong in your life and to show you how much he loved and cared about you. I'm convinced if this world is ever one to Jesus Christ, it will not be through more programs it will not be through casting more vision and uh, training more leaders, um, going to more seminars and more conventions and going to more Bible studies and anything like that. It will only happen when the people of God start reflecting the Son of God in our lives so that people can see we understand 
There is no one righteous, not even one. Only God is righteous. And the only reason I am here today, the only reason I am even where I am in my walk with God is because God in grace stooped down and in love said, Rick, I forgive you. I love you. And I want to change your life. Friend Paul says that conversion, his life was changed. And it was only because of grace. You see, grace shapes the believer. Grace saves the believer. Grace sanctifies the believer. I want you to see in the third place, and I'll be done. After conversion, Paul proclaimed grace. In verses 16 through 24, and I'm only going to read the latter part of verse 16. You can read verses 17 through uh, 24, and you can see all the places where Paul went to after he was saved. But all of these astounding acts of grace by God in Paul's life served one stated purpose, and it's found there in the latter part of verse 16, that Paul might preach him, Christ, among the Gentiles. Now think about this. In Paul's mind, the Gentiles were dogs, the filth of the earth. Yet Paul says, essentially, I was so radically changed by the grace of God that I realized that the object of God's plan for me was to reach people I cared nothing about so that they too could understand and hear the grace of God. The Judaizers had claimed that Paul had made up his gospel, that Paul was an imposter, that he changed the gospel just to suit his own purposes. But Paul's testimony here in verses 17 through 24 rule out that his gospel came from anybody but Jesus Christ himself because Paul recounts his itinerant preaching travels after his conversion. He went off to, for, in the desert for three years and then, um, look, he says, I did not immediately consult with anyone nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles. I went away into Arabia and I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem and so he went off, spent three years alone with God. He learned everything he knew from God, directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul, when he was through with that three years of learning, he then he started preaching. And it wasn't until after that that he went to Jerusalem to consult with some of the apostles in Jerusalem. And they confirmed the message that he was proclaiming was the real gospel. And Paul is saying, this is the proof that the gospel that I'm proclaiming to you, the gospel that I've shared with you, is the gospel. And it is powerful. Look, I'm the one that used to persecute and round up Christians. I hated the church. I hated Christ. I wanted to wipe every Christian I could off the face of the earth. But those who have heard me preach, look in verse 24, churches throughout Judea who had heard of his conversion to Christ glorified Christ because of Paul. Why? Because the one who had formerly persecuted them was now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. 
And why did Paul do it? Look in verse 24. Because of the glory of God. To bring God glory. Now as I wrap up, I want to just give you some suggestions about sharing your faith. Maybe you've been praying for that one person. Maybe you've been praying for a family member or a loved one, a co-worker, and you just don't know how to go about sharing your faith with them. I want to give you some suggestions because in light of Paul's powerful testimony, I want to emphasize a lesson for us, and that is when God transforms a life, there's always a testimony. There's always a story to tell. So here are some suggestions in putting together your testimony. I want to first give you four things not to do when sharing your testimony. First, don't preach, just talk. Don't preach, just talk. Don't make demands. Let your story speak for itself. Number two, don't generalize, be specific. Mention places and events and people that were a part of your salvation experience. Share your feelings, share your thoughts. Tell how you came to the point of becoming a Christian. Number three, don't be vague, be clear and simple. In other words, put away all your Christianese. Um, uh, Terms like got saved or the sinner's prayer, they're not going to know what you mean when you say that. We've gotten used to terms like that in the church. But if you're trying to reach a person who does not go to church, maybe has never even been in church, you start using phrases like that, they're not going to know anything about at all about what you're talking about. Um, Don't defend yourself. Simply tell your story. In other words, you don't need to validate your testimony. Just talk about trusting Christ and what that has done in your life. Now, let me share three things you should do when sharing your testimony. First of all, be brief. If Paul could summarize his miraculous testimony in just 14 verses, you can easily keep yours to at least a paper. When we used to, um, uh, when I was a trustee with the International Mission Board, we would ask the uh, um, people coming in uh, to um, that we were going to approve the candidates. We would prove for the mission field uh, to give their testimonies, and they were required to write it out on a single sheet of paper. Um, be brief. You don't have to tell every single detail. Um, keep your story down to a few minutes um, and be selective with your details. Number two, be logical. Be logical. In other words, tell what happened before your conversion. Talk about how you got saved and then how your life has changed Sense. So do basically what I've just given you in the outline of Paul's conversion. Talk about your life before conversion. Talk about what happened at conversion and then how your life has changed since. And then lastly, be humble. Focus on your changed life after your conversion. Don't glorify your past life of sin. Remember, your intent is to glorify God um, uh, as well as to Uh, present the gospel. Um, So here's what I suggest you do. Sometime in the next few days, take some time and write out your personal testimony. 
After you have done that, go back and reread it and edit it. Make it as short and to the point as possible. And then I want to encourage you to start sharing it with others. A family member, co-worker, that one you're praying for. Start using your testimony um, uh, about uh, how you came to know Christ. And in your testimony, include the gospel. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Christ and what God has done for us. And as you do this, I encourage you to remember the Apostle Peter's words in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Peter said, In your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So, go forth. And like Paul, share your salvation story. And don't underemphasize the grace of God. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word and for the truth of the gospel that no one is beyond saving. No one can be so morally wrong that your grace is not available. Neither can one be so sincerely religious that they are blinded to the truth. Lord, I pray that as we saw in the life of Paul, that there is the opportunity for each of us to give our lives to Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you that in your love, you stooped down in grace and you said to each and every person in this room at a point in time, I love you. I know your life forwards and backwards. I knew you before you were even born. But I want you to know my grace has been on your life even before you were conceived in your mother's womb. I have been preparing you for this day when you, like the Apostle Paul, would come to understand my love for you, my desire to forgive you, to adopt you into my family as my son and my daughter. And now I want you, having experienced my grace, to go out and be a channel of grace to those around you who also need to hear about my love. Father, I pray that your will be done in our lives here today. May you be honored and glorified and may your people be blessed. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe that you want to come this morning and just kneel here at this altar and just thank God for his grace. 
on your life. Maybe you've never experienced conversion. You've never turned your life around. You've never asked Jesus Christ to come into your heart, to forgive you of your sins, to be your Savior and Lord. Friend, why would you turn away something so wonderful that didn't cost you anything? God did it all for you. He's just simply saying, receive it. Trust me. I will forgive you. And I will bless your life. Whatever decision you need to make this morning, we'll give you that opportunity. Let's stand together. We're going to sing. Band's going to lead us.